you're a classic example of the inverse ratio between the size of the mouth and the size of the Doctor Who podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the DWP, The Doctor Who Podcast. In this episode, we'll be reviewing the fan reaction to Vincent and the Doctor. What did you think? What did I think? What does James think? What do we all think? Sit down, strap in, and off we go. Yes, hello and welcome to episode 25. I'm joined by Tom as always. Good morning, Tom. Morning. Morning. Well, I suppose we should say good afternoon, good evening, depending on when our listeners have decided to tune into this. Yeah, good point, actually. It's one of those things about being a multinational podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, I feel like Truman. Um, you seen the Truman Show? Hello, good morning, good afternoon and good evening. And a very large smile. Well, that's what we should do then. Perhaps we should change the way we introduce the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, maybe we need Trevor back to make certain these introductions don't get so poor in future <laughs> I, I think characterful is what we're looking for that's what they would be characterful indeed okay well as tom said we're here to review the fan reactions of vincent and the doctor and my goodness what a myriad of opinion fandom seems to have about this particular episode but before we get into reviewing the nuts and bolts of what you think let's talk about the well let's have the obligatory stats section now i don't know about you tom but this always makes me extremely excited <laughs> Well, okay, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. The space in other people, which is reserved for football, and oh my God, people are going crazy for football over this next couple of weeks and months, um, is reserved for me for Doctor Who. So hearing about the audience appreciation figures and hearing about the uh, viewing figures, to me, is kind of exciting and or depressing. And this week is interesting because we have the comparison with uh, Britain's Got Talent's final so, uh, yeah, let's hear the numbers. Yeah, well, the more I see Britain's Got Talent, the less convinced I am that we have any. But anyway, <laughs> 5 million viewers for episode 10. See, that's not... I, I don't think that's particularly good, but then, mm. given given what's going on around it, that's pretty good. Um, I, I, I don't know what the weather was like in your area, but it was blisteringly hot up here. Yeah, same, same in London, same in London. Um, 4.7 million watched on BBC One, where it was the highest rated show of the day. So in context, yeah. that's yeah. really good. Yes, um, definitely. An additional 0.3 million watched on BBC HD, giving a total audience of 5 million and a share of 29.4% of the total audience. So we're talking, you know, just under a third of everyone who was watching television that day watched yeah, Doctor good. Who. Yeah, I mean, I think in context it is pretty good. It's, it's quite weird, isn't it? Because you can predict the audience figures pretty much of any Doctor Who season. There's always going to be a very, very high start and then you gradually take a slow downhill turn and we get to around about the mid-episodes or the mid-season episodes 
And all mm. of a sudden, the stories really start picking up, in my opinion, and yet mm. the audience statistics start going down, which I mm. think is a shame. But yes, Doctor Who is currently 26th for the week, a position, a position which will rise when the final figures are released next Monday. Mm. Okay, I think that we're doing well. And as you rightly say, uh, it starts off nice and big with a big bang because there's all the promotion at the beginning of the season. People then just accept that it's there. Um, I think there's an awful lot of people watch it, as I do actually, on occasion, on the iPlayer. Mm, uh, and, so, mm. and so it's always good to see the final figures. And then we get to the end of the season, it's, a big, it's the big finale. And then the most important thing to me is that we get to Christmas and it's the most watched thing on TV that day. Yeah. Um, Apart from EastEnders, usually. <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. It's the, there's the binary. It's, it's quite terrible. Like I say, for me, it's a bit like football. Um, I know which side I want to win. <laughs> <laughs> and, if, and if both of the hit shows are on the right side, that's fine by me. Well, I, I seem to be one of these extremely rare animals um, who likes Doctor Who, you know, obsessively at some points, it has to be said, but I also thoroughly enjoy football. And I've not met many other Doctor <laughs> Who fans who are really very keen on A football or B sport in general. And I can analyse sports statistics uh, okay. down to the nth degree and still maintain a level of interest. But when I tell you, for instance, Tom, that Vincent and a Doctor got an audience appreciation index of 86, yes. you know... I appreciate that's good, but I just want to move on. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Let's do just that then. <laughs> Hi, Trev and everybody at the Doctor Who podcast. It's Adam here from the 20 Megabyte Doctor Who podcast. I just wanted to say a couple of things about Vincent and the Doctor. It was a little bit like your podcast. Absolutely brilliant. There were only a couple of minor things I didn't like. One, it really stood out like a sore thumb that Vincent was Scottish. Don't remember that one in the history books. And, um, but we, you know, there's so many little things like that that you have to sort of like push to one side, like perhaps the uh, the doctor wearing the jacket in the, um, the forest, well, uh, that might be corrected at a later date, and perhaps Rory might come back to life. But some... Um, on the whole, trying to forget other stories, this thing on its own lived up to expectations in my eyes because it was so good. It was so good. Um, it was romantic, funny, heart-wrenching. It was moving. And in that little time period of 45 minutes, it was a proper roller coaster. And, uh, oh, it was so good. I can't say much more about it, can I? Um, and also... I just wondered if I could give yet another plug for my podcast, the 20 Megabyte Doctor Who podcast. Now, the reason I want to put it on your show is because yours is one, you know, you're one of the people that I've listened to over a long period of time now that uh, uh, spurred me on in the world of podcasting. And what a buzz it is when you realise you've got listeners. I never realised <laughs> what effect that would have on me. And it really does give you the inspiration to carry on and, uh, and try and do better with your podcast. And I think we've done that, actually, with the first three episodes. Um, so, if your listeners wouldn't mind um, checking us out, because I know I haven't got enough podcasts to last me two days in all the podcasts I listen to. So, um, more the merrier from my liking. And, uh, and uh, you've introduced me to the Oodcast, which was, wow, <laughs> brilliant, entertaining, and talented people that, that do that. So... I think we've all got our own genre. We've been described as being laid back. So give us a listen. And thank you. Thank you for everything. See you later.
Okay, uh, moving on to the second part of our statistical analysis, our weekly statistical analysis. Um, polls and votes. Gallifrey Base has had 4,027 votes at the time of recording. The highest rating is 10 out of 10, and 31% of those 4,000 voters said they thought it was a fantastic story, which I think is a really, really good and strong statistic. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it does seem does seem to have gone across on GB as a bit of a marmite story, but yeah. we'll get to that in a short while. Sure, eighty eight percent marked it seven or above, which means that there's only twelve percent marked it six or below, which again um, reflects my opinion of the story. Certainly, that it was a very very strong one. A slightly different story from Doctor Who Online. They've had two hundred and sixty one votes. Highest rating is five out of five, but again. Um, there's 66% of people have said it's worth five out of five. So that that's a much higher appreciation over at DWO than Gallifrey Base at the moment. It, do, it does seem to have split the pack. Well, I say split the pack. The people who love it absolutely love it. The people who don't like it have an interesting range of reasons for not liking it. Um, I think we should take a look at some of the messages uh, that have yes. been posted, uh, both on the DWP forums and over at Doctor Who Online. I'm afraid I haven't got anything from Gallifrey Base because I'm not actually a member of Gallifrey Base. Um, but our first email that I'd like to read out, and I'll quote the name this time because this is from our own forums. It's Ross Bennett. Um, hey, hello, Ross. Um, Ross is a relatively new member as well, posted about 25 times, and he's got a slightly different opinion to, to most. He says, I guess different things appeal to different folks. I thought it was fine. A good, stable, reliable Doctor Who. Though I can't say it quite lived up to my expectations after some of the press it got. And this is the part why I really wanted to read out Ross's post. Okay. And really, am I the only one who is thinking Doctor Who and a hippogriff? I half expected someone to call it Buckbeak. <laughs> and um, I, I think comparisons with Harry Potter have been drawn in the past, but that was predominantly with the Master's Resurrection last season, um, okay. or, or the, the end of time. But yeah, I mean, we, we talked about the giant space chicken on, on, on our review episode, <laughs> and I think hippogriffs do have something in common with chickens. I think they probably are related some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a couple of things inside that. The the chicken reference is not lost because, frankly, it moved like a chicken. It had, uh, and I, I think even that little device the doctor was using identified it as a bird, which, of course, is uh, what dinosaurs uh, evolved into eventually. The other thing is Harry Potter. I'm glad, I'm glad someone else has said Harry Potter, actually. Um, the sonic screwdriver is becoming very much like a magic wand. Yes. What a good point. I hadn't even thought about that. It's been bugging me for a couple of weeks, actually. Matt's got a very specific way of wielding his screwdriver. <laughs> yes, um, yes. No, no, no weirdness intended there. But it does make it seem very much like a magic wand. I'll point it at everything. I'll use it to take readings and so on and so forth, which is probably why uh, mm. JNT wanted to get rid of it back in the early 80s. But yeah, um, so one is a magic fantasy show, one is a science fantasy show. I, I get that. I get that. Fair mm, comment. It's actually a really good point you make there. Now, do you remember back to Cold Bloods where the Doctor was using his sonic screwdriver to disable the Silurian guns? Yep, and he, point it at the Earth to try and bring Amy back. And yes, indeed. And try and locate the TARDIS as well. It's like, what will the thing not do? <laughs> well, this, well, this is it. But my, my point is he wasn't using it. He wasn't pointing it at the guns. He was holding it up. Mm. He was holding mm. up, and that for me is very magic wand-like. So yeah, it just reinforces your theory really there. Anyway, moving on to a slightly different perspective. This is from, uh, it, this is from someone on the DWO forums. I've just had a horrible thought. Could the Doctor have unwittingly driven Van Gogh to suicide? 
by giving him too much of a challenge stroke legacy to live up to. Interesting viewpoint. <laughs> it's interesting, but slightly odd. Yes, um, <laughs> it, it could have it could have been the case if 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 what the Doctor had done is uh, exposed the intricacies and mechanics of the of the universe and the time space vortex to him, then a mind which is capable of seeing the world in the way that he did that he did, I Van Gogh, may well have been overwhelmed by that. But I noticed that this particular Doctor is relatively happy to just like chuck people into the TARDIS. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's almost uh, a hark back to the Davison era where everybody was in the TARDIS. It wasn't a kind of secret anymore. And mm. I'm, I'm thinking of Black Orchid but I think he had about six or seven different people in the TARDIS at the same time in the end. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But th- that does seem to be a trait um, of the 10th Doctor that wasn't evident in 9th or 10th. Right. 11th. Thank you very much. Oh, it's all numbers. <laughs> now, we've already known Doctor Who has uh, addressed dyslexia, so I feel perfectly safe in getting my numbers wrong there. <laughs> That's cool. All right, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's an interesting point. Um, doing a little bit more background reading about Van Gogh, you, you see that perhaps Richard Curtis did the same reading because very high up in any kind of search that comes up, there are references to uh, the way he sees the world and there are references to time. I think in the last podcast episode, I, I, I used one of the quotes that's uh, relatively famous about his attitude to time and uh, the veil of reality. Um, so yeah, it, 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 Van Gogh's history fits nicely into the way that the episode was written. The, you know, the, the tragedy here, and I'm, I'm very, very aware that there's lots of different ages and experiences that listen to the podcast, so, so I need to be a bit careful. The tragedy is that Vincent did end his own life. I, I think, as I said over the weekend, the, the good thing about this is that it exposes that there are different ways of people experiencing life. Van Gogh, quite frankly, was a genius. You know, we, we have his work and that absolutely uh, bears that out. Interestingly, uh, quite by coincidence, a few months ago I was at the, uh, the Tate Gallery in Liverpool and they had a couple of Van Goghs out and they had the sunflowers and they had the chair and they are astonishing photos. They are photographs. They are astonishing pictures. Absolutely amazing, vibrant. They leap out at you, and that little speech that uh, Tony Curran made, where he said that the colours call to him, they threaten him, they challenge him, saying, "Come capture me, capture me." You can see what's going. Those pictures are alive. They're absolutely astonishing. Even <clears throat> after all this time, they, they they absolutely resonate. They're gorgeous. They're gorgeous. If Doctor Who is doing, what I hope it, it what this episode I hope has done in the majority, which is to say. Children, people, be interested. Go and see this man's work. And again, I've, I've got to come back to that soliloquy from Bill Nye at the very end. Not only was he one of the greatest artists that ever lived, he was one of the greatest men to ever live as well. That sort of recommendation to go and discover art, perfect, beautiful. It, it's interesting because Doctor Who does inspire and it has historically inspired children to take an interest in things that they may not otherwise do so. Um, and I think that probably extends to adults as well. And I've got to be honest, I went to the Tate on the South Bank and I didn't see any Van Gogh or Van Gogh. I'm so, you have to correct me, Tom. Which is the correct pronunciation? Uh, Gogh. Gogh, right, with the yeah. phlegm. Van Gogh. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't remember seeing any Van Goghs um, specifically, <laughs> mm. but I, I could not appreciate a lot of the art on there. As far as I was concerned, it was extremely hard to see into the minds of these individual artists, other than to assume that they were commercially astute in as much as they could just throw a bucket of paint at a canvas and sell it for thousands of pounds. I think that's excellent. But it has made me reconsider Van Gogh's work. And 
I am interested in looking at some of his paintings and I went online to take a look at the painting of the house after this mm. episode, mm. Uh, which doesn't have a monster in it, surprisingly, and, and also sunflowers. And I would have to say, you're right, you can sit there and look at those paintings and get a little bit lost in them. Um, but before this turns into an art appreciation um, <laughs> podcast, I guess we ought to get back to Doctor Who somewhat. Good afternoon, chaps. It's Mark here. I thought it was really nice to see a proper educational, historical episode of Doctor Who. We've had, obviously, we've had historical episodes. We've had the Daleks in World War II. But this was an episode which it seemed to be primarily there to fulfil one of Doctor Who's original criteria to be able to visit historical settings and to educate. It was a particularly nice opening with Bill Nye being, well, Bill Nye in an art gallery situation. The bow ties were cool line was a nice reference back to the start of the series. There were lots of little nice touches in the episode. There was a comment about Dark Knight, very starry, as the trio walked along to Vincent's house. I thought in this episode the set designers did a fantastic job. They really deserve a good pat on the back. They were inspired in bringing Vincent's painting to life in the set of Vincent's house, just the general feel of the environments they're operating in. The set designers were awesome. The steampunk device, which looked like a car mirror, was good fun, but it was a bit of a MacGuffin. I wasn't that keen on the just pulling this magical device out of the chest. I would have been much happier to have made the monster, for some reason, only able to be seen by the mad and maybe indirectly in a mirror, and then have the Doctor pull a car mirror out of a box of junk, which would serve essentially the same purpose. The device did give rise to one of my favourite lines in the episode, though. The Doctor shows Vincent's sketch of the monster to the device, and the device can't identify it, so he says, This is the problem with the Impressionists. Not accurate enough. This would never happen with Gainsborough, or one of those proper painters. Sorry, Vincent. Tony Curran did extremely well as Vincent and was very well cast, I thought. He was very believable. And the move into depression and back was very well handled, I thought. Possibly my favourite scene of the whole series was the painting sequence. The boredom of the Doctor was great to watch. I remember watching Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. Wow. What a winger. I kept saying to him, look, if you're scared of heights, you shouldn't have taken the job, mate. And Picasso, what a ghastly old goat. I kept telling him, concentrate, Pablo. It's one eye, either side of the face. Quiet. The Doctor is finding things to do, and he's getting bored. And it cuts to a later scene, later in the evening. They've obviously been there several hours. And we see the Doctor in close-up saying, This is how time normally passes. Really slowly. In the right order. It just speaks volumes to the man's character. And I really loved that scene. That was that just made me laugh out loud. That was just class. The monster was almost incidental to this episode. The main point of the episode was the character piece, the relations between Doctor Amy and Vincent. The Doctor was concerned that their presence would put Van Gogh at risk, and the paintings in the Musée d'Orsay would disappear. Yet he takes the calculated risk of taking Van Hock to the Musée d'Orsay. Amy expected history to be rewritten, to come back and be able to find many more paintings from a now happier Vincent. Obviously that wasn't to be. 
the message being that history can't be rewritten, that time somehow restores itself and you have to seize the moments that you've got. Now, that's a theme which I feel is going to be returned to in the next few episodes. I really don't want to seem an uncritical fanboy, but this series is really pushing the buttons for me. I think this was another five out of five. Um, the same person who talked about the Doctor potentially driving Van Gogh to suicide also made another point which I quite liked, and I wish we'd have touched upon this, actually, during our review of it on Sunday. Um, this was concerning the accent of Tony Curran, because, of course, he was Scottish. It was a Scottish Van Gogh. Uh, despite Van Gogh, I've done it again, Van Gogh. Uh, <laughs> despite him saying he was from Holland. Yes. And this particular poster says... For those complaining about the accent, it's clearly explained. Amy hears, in brackets, so presumably we hear, close brackets, Vincent in a Scottish accent because that's what she's familiar with. Just as Vincent undoubtedly hears Amy speaking French with a Dutch accent because that's what he was most familiar with. And, you know, that hadn't crossed my mind at all. And I think it's an excellent point. <laughs> and it could very, very neatly gets around the fact that you've got a Scottish actor playing Van Gogh. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I loved the, the way it was explained in Fires of Pompeii as well. I don't even, I don't <laughs> yes, even remember. <laughs> I do, I do. With Donna. Yes. Um, trying Latin or something, wasn't it? Yep, she tries Latin and he hears Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think that means the only person who's ever really defeated the TARDIS translation circuits is Donna Noble, and that is quite fitting, to be honest. <laughs> Definitely so. Oh, another gorgeous redhead, but that's a whole different podcast. Ooh, the broadcast. Redhead Podcast with oh. Tom, coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get off that now. Moving on to a couple more posts. and Again, these are from the DWO forums. Um, they say, by no means an awful episode, and not there are not up there with love and monsters or fear her as the watch once episode now that's a particularly interesting point because i loved love and monsters but we won't get we won't go down there um i <laughs> could have <not>. done <laughs> not yet maybe we will in the off season um i could have done without the coldplay type music at the end partly because it was so smaltzy and also because it will date the program which is a shame a um, couple of points there. I think, yeah, I mean, Russell T. Davis set the benchmark for contemporary music. We had Britney Spears. We had Tainted Love. Uh, we had Here Come the Drums. Oh, all manner of dreadful pieces of music that we've never seen in Doctor Who before. I didn't feel this kind of Coldplay-esque. It, well, was it actually Coldplay? No, it's by a band called Athlete. And the, the uh, I, I believe the, the exact track is called Changes or Chances. Let me just double check for you. But yes, it's Athlete. Okay, but I didn't think that was particularly out of kilt with the remainder, with the episode or with the tone of the episode. I thought oh. it worked quite nicely, personally. Doctor Who is... Quite frankly, on occasion, a melodrama. Um, you, you need to have uh, the music sort of sweeping you up. And I think part of the emotional impact of that whole last set, that last five, ten minutes, was down to the quality of the music. It starts beautifully gently, as it would do as Vincent walks in, and then you've got this huge, great blast of euphoric sound as he looks around and sees and sees uh, his paintings he sees sees the people appreciating the paintings and you have the the nice soliloquy about it as well so yes some people did complain and say it was too loud it was too schmaltzy but i think the majority of people did what i did what my partner did what a lot of the people who enjoyed it did which was to just choke back a bit of a lump in the throat and go oh this is amazing this is absolutely beautiful because it was amazing it was beautiful it was fitting in the same way 
as when uh, the Tenth Doctor regenerated, there was a beat, and then it was this huge orchestral, da, 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 da. Yeah. Um, which really was a beat round the head, I think, with a, with an orchestra. But it was, <laughs> definitely, definitely. Uh, but this this was this was absolutely in context with the episode. I felt and. Also, it complemented the rest of the incidental music. Now, one thing that is very, very notable uh, by its absence from the forums is Murray Gold's music on this episode. And I think that is a massive indication of how far he's come in Series 5 because there, there was the same kind of riff and there's been a lot of complaints or dissents on the forums uh, concerning the using of the same piece of music and any kind of sequence that involves running, you get that kind of music, you know, really hitting you over the head again. I'm glad um, you mentioned that, actually. I'm glad mm. you mentioned that because I, 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 I did the thing which I, sh- which I should have done some weeks ago, actually, which is to go back and watch Victory of the Daleks because I, I've yeah. got it in my head that I didn't like it. Uh, and I went back and watched it. And, it's, and do you know what? It's actually brilliant. It's really, really good. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's not. <laughs> I think you should trust your first instincts. And I remember your first impressions of Victory of the Daleks. You were very, very disappointed. And I think when you rewatch something again and again and again, and it's even worked for me with Journey's End, you can start picking bits out that you enjoy. And then you start feeling a little bit more comfortable as a fan. So that's, I think rewatching is a great thing to do with some of these episodes. But I also think you should bear in mind your original impression and... That, that's still very, very important, despite it making you feel quite uncomfortable at the time. Is it time for Weirdy Theory? Because I've got two here. I've got, <laughs> I, I've got Kooky Theory of the Week, number one and number two. Wonderful. Is this time to play our Kooky Theory insert? Go for it. Kooky Theory... Of the week. <laughs> right. The first one, I'm pleased to see bit picked up by somebody else because I alluded to it in episode 24. Oh! Um, cookie theory of the week number one is that Dr. Black is, of course, you know what I'm going to say, the Doctor. Ah! Um, it was taken up, it was, it was kicked up an extra level by someone saying, no, it's not the Doctor, it's the Master. Ooh! But they seem to have picked up on the same thing that I did as well, which is that Dr. Black and the 11th Doctor do look remarkably similar. Um, the bow ties, they, they were taking the bow ties being significant of something and the way that he just said, oh, I'm Dr. Bl- uh, Black. Uh, as be- and the lack of credit as well is being seen by some as an indication that uh, Dr. Black was the Doctor. Now, I'm not going to say anything about that because I, I could, if I, if I take the brakes off and let go of my sanity, I can see it. But it just struck me as being a bit left field. But we'll see. Who knows? The guy could be right. Uh, sorry, in this case, the girl could be right. Who knows? I think the only thing that's intriguing about that theory is the fact that Bill and I wasn't credited. Mm, and mm. that that is odd. I have to say that's odd because you, I mean, we, we mentioned, I think I mentioned on the last podcast that he was the most famous and established actor in this entire episode. Mm. And I wouldn't have been surprised had they decided to include his name up front on the opening titles, as they've done with so many other, you know, well-known actors in the past. But I don't know whether or not that really is just reading too much into it. We're back into that argument again, you know, how much analysis is appropriate here. Mm. I don't really see the comparison between 
Dr. Black and the Doctor. I think there's a mutual respect, but that was basically because they were both wearing bow ties. And that's what's done it. They, they look so similar. They did, honestly, they look so similar. It's like, oh, that's well, yeah. there, was, there was a little bit of a bow tie love in there. Um, I mean, I, I can't really see Matt Smith looking similar either. He's about half Bill Nye's age. He's got different coloured hair, um, possibly similar kind of speech. Mm. But... Uh, no, you see, sorry. You're, talk, you're talking yourself it. into it there. <laughs> no, can't, can't see that one, I'm afraid. Um, interesting idea, but to be honest with you, every single character that comes up every single week is either the master river song, the love child of the TARDIS, and a tree that featured in an episode. <laughs> and, you know, these, these kooky theories are becoming really kooky at times. Sometimes you think, oh, no, they're deliberately doing this now. <laughs> that's, not, that's not as good as number two. That you mentioned, not... yes, you mentioned you had a second... <clears throat> Yes. All right. So if you think, let me have it. Well, if you look at um, the the scene where you, we first encounter Vincent at the at the tavern, uh, someone has noticed that just it, on the street next to the tavern, there's a doorway, which whose frame is picked out in Tardis blue, and the fact that it is in Tardis blue has made is is made this person try and force the theory that it's actually River Song's Tardis. Right, and River Song is where? Doesn't matter where River Song is, it's her TARDIS. It's her TARDIS. Yeah, the thread went on for two pages. Oh my goodness. Wow, that's, that's quite impressive. Um, no, strangely, I didn't notice that. That's because it's not really there to be noticed, in total honesty. No, no, that's quite quite true, I think. It's, it's fascinating. I, I, I think... By the time we've finished Series 5, we on the DWP will have discussed at least 13, 14 different kooky theories. One of them's going to be right. One of them's going to be right. (laughs) I wonder which one. I wonder which one. If we happen to remember which kooky theory is right, then we'll, we'll certainly have to go back and talk about it then. But it'll be quite interesting if we get through this series and absolutely no kooky theory has got any foundation in truth whatsoever. But given what's out there in internet land at the moment, Mm. (laughs) every single possibility is pretty much covered. Hey there, Trev, James, and Tom. This is Samuel Lewis of samuellewis.blogspot.com, and I was sending in some feedback about the Doctor Who Adventure game that has come out recently. For those people that are inside the UK, they may not know that it's actually being held back for everyone outside of the UK. It's something that they do often on the website, which with videos I don't mind, but in this case, I'm a bit miffed, um, if that's the proper word. On the actual website, if you go to the Doctor Who Adventure Game page for the download, it says, If you live outside the UK, the first Adventure Game will be available to purchase in early July. We will have more information shortly on release dates and where you can buy them, so watch this space. Now, what does this mean? Essentially laying it out, one, it means that the game is not coming out until next month, and two, that we're going to have to pay for it. Now, my problem is not really with paying for it. I mean, I think I actually get their logic. I mean, in the UK, they're paying the license fee, so why not, since they're paying them the license fee? You know, it's kind of like a gift back. You pay the license fee for Doctor Who, so we're going to give you the game for free. It almost makes sense in certain aspects. But to 
actually delay it until July? What? Why is that move? For those that haven't seen Cold Blood and The Hungry Earth yet, I won't exactly say it, but is it possible that there's something in the game that has a certain spoiler, which I won't mention, that could make it worse? I don't think so. It being a Dalek story, I don't know how that particular plot line could possibly even affect the storyline of this particular adventure game. So what is it? I think they're just not really thinking about the American, Canadian, um, Australian in some cases, all of the different people outside of the UK. They're so used to catering that they really don't care about their people outside. And this is something I think all of us Doctor Who fans need to get behind. All of you, send, send letters and emails to the BBC. Let them know that we want this game. If they release... All I'm asking is that they release it on time. And if they released it on time, I wouldn't even be annoyed. I'd be happy to pay for it. Just please release it the exact same time that it releases in the UK. At any case, we all need to send them letters and let them know that we don't like this. After the Graham Norton scandal... It's possible that the BBC may react. Love the podcast, guys, and loved hearing Marty on last week's episode. It was great. See you guys later. Bye. Um, well, you know, I think that's pretty much it. Um, it's a great episode. It's polarised opinion to a certain degree. Uh, and I think we've talked about some of the most the more salient points. It'll be worth looking at this episode in context of the whole season later on. Um, but I think having looked back, let's look forward to uh, this week's episode, which is going to be The Lodger. Now, some people may already be aware that uh, this is actually going to be based on a Gareth Roberts comic strip that was published in Doctor Who Monthly. I should say, I say Doctor Who Monthly, Doctor Who Magazine uh, some years ago. Uh, now, I've had a chance to read the strip. James, I think you've seen it too. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I, I was one of those um, sad fans who was able to dig out the actual edition of the of DWM to, to read it again. But yeah, it was, um, it was in 2006. Can't remember the precise edition of number at this point. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was a Tenth Doctor story. Uh, it featured Mickey as well. Mm-hmm. And clearly that's changed a little bit now. And the characters, or those two characters, have been replaced by Matt Smith's Doctor and James Cordon mm. of Gavin and Stacey fame, I believe. That's it. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, actually, he's actually very good. Um, mm. Some people have, as they do, uh, complained that you shouldn't have comedic actors in Doctor Who, forgetting, of course, about, ooh, John Pertwee, ooh, <laughs> uh, Catherine Tate, you know, both of whom turned in, well, what can only be described as phenomenally good performances. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not worried about the casting in the slightest, to be honest with you. Um, I, I think the pairing of Cordon with Gareth Roberts is clearly setting this episode up to be a bit of light relief prior to the finale. And um, Gareth Roberts, of course, has written two episodes on his own in the past, The Unicorn on the Wasp. Again, another episode that's polarised fan opinion, at least. And The Shakespeare Code, which again had comic undertones. Um, He also co-wrote Planet of the Dead, I think, with Russell T. Davis. So it'll be interesting. I am slightly concerned about the episodes. As I said, I've I've not really been a big fan of Gareth Roberts' TV episodes. Mm. But we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I think you're right. 
from what I'm from what I can gather about the episode and having read the strip, I think what we're in for is a bit of a breath, uh, the calm before the storm, because the last two episodes of this season, um, by all accounts, are huge. So mm. I think it might be worth. I think we just got we've just got time for a bit of a sit down after the emotional roller coaster of last week's episode and uh, the storm that is to come. It will be nice to have a bit of a, a, a bit of light relief. But then again, I say that, then I know I know there's an awful lot of fans who really don't like light relief in their Doctor Who. But hey, it's a mm. show we get to we get all, all, all human life and all opinion is here. Absolutely. Anyway, I think that really is about it for this edition of the Doctor Who podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed spending the last forty minutes or so hearing Tom and I ramble i think is probably the only word we could use um i I would like to say constructively analyze but i think that might be pushing it a little bit too much um as always feel free to send in your feedback you'll hear marty with the email address fairly soon and feel free to drop us a note on twitter as well we will be making an effort to start reading out some tweets as i think the correct vernacular is in future episodes keep the feedback coming in and we'll be back with trevor i believe in episode 26 of the Doctor Who podcast. Take it easy. Bye for now. That was the Doctor Who podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. I know, you know Trev's been having this holiday, Tom. Um, Has he actually been on holiday? I don't think he's been on holiday. He keeps on sending me messages. It, it, it's, it's, it's like he's checking up on us just to make certain that we're behaving whilst he's away. Well, I've got text messages. <laughs> my Facebook's been bulging. It's really cool. Well, you know, it, it's nice to know that we're loved, but in a court of law, it might be called stalking, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never been stalked by someone the other side of the world before. It's a new, but... it's a new experience. And, and do you know, when we were recording, I actually got a Skype instant message and I had to tell him to clear off. I had to tell him to clear off. But yeah, Trev, we do miss you. We do miss you. But when you're on holiday, turn your computer off and go and sit on the beach. Yes. That's what most Aussies do, isn't it? Well, exactly so. Maybe just go and throw another couple of shrimps on the barbie or something, you know? Shrimps on the barbie, oh, yeah. eh? Okay, I can't do Australian accent at all. Well, neither can I. That's perfectly all right. <laughs> <laughs>